Andrew Dodge was only 38 years old when he found out that he had a rare form of brain cancer. And surgery and treatment has helped prolong his life, but there is no cure. It is terminal cancer. Andrew is here to share his story today with other young people who are facing cancer. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story about um, your battle with brain cancer. I know it's important for you to talk about your story in the hopes that you're going to help other people, especially younger people, um, because you were yeah. quite young, uh, who are who are facing a life-threatening cancer. So yeah. you were only 38 when you were diagnosed with correct, brain yeah. cancer. Yeah. So what was like? What was what was life like before that? What kinds of things were you doing in your world um, before you got your diagnosis? Um, I was working on a program at work uh, called Eternal Roots, looking for family members um, of kids who were um, foster kids or kids who were adopted. Uh, so that was my main job. Um, I was working alone in an office from a, in a church that the RAF rented out, and. Um, that was uh, my job before everything happened. So, and Raft, if you can just explain um, what Raft oh, yes, is. Yes. Uh, the Raft is a youth shelter in St. Catharines. Uh, the, um, it's a shelter that will shelter 16 to 24-year-olds, uh, men and women. Um, and we help them find housing. Okay, so you were 38 when you were diagnosed, um, which was in 2019, so just a few years ago. And what was it that made you go to the doctor, that, that, that there was a sense that there was you know, something wrong? Um, it was on uh, March 24th of that year. Um, I was in bed. I went to bed late. I worked a, an evening shift. <clears throat> and um, I was... Well, I wasn't really woken up, but I uh, had a seizure at four in the morning. Um, luckily, my now wife, Catherine, uh, saw the seizure happening, uh, called the 911. Um, I had thought I was just dehydrated, so went to the hospital. Uh, I got a CAT scan. They told me the news at that time. I had a, a mass on my brain, <clears throat> and um, we weren't really sure what to think about it at that time, but uh, it, all the information kind of kept coming in slowly. Uh, and that's when I wasn't officially diagnosed at that time, but I knew something was wrong beyond being dehydrated. So had you had any, was it the first seizure that you'd, that you'd experienced? Yep. Yeah, the very first seizure of my entire life, yeah. Right. So had you had any other, um, like, headaches or anything else that? No, not at all. Um, the only thing I could think of that was happening beforehand is sometimes I would trip up on my words. So I would, uh, I would just forget a word, and it wasn't normal for me to do that. But um, I didn't think much of it because sometimes when you're working hard or you have a lot on your plate, you don't really think to, uh, uh, you don't really think much of forgetting words or yeah. something like that. Occasionally, you know, not often, but it happened once in a while. Uh, it doesn't happen so much anymore. Uh, so I, it's the only thing I can really think of that was um, a sign or a warning sign to yeah. me. Yeah. In, but it was in hindsight, really. Yeah, hind, definitely hindsight, yeah. Beforehand, I wasn't thinking anything of it. The, mm -hmm. the seizure is what really told me that something was wrong. And so when you went to the doctors, did they suspect a tumor right away, which obviously must have been touching on a part of your brain that would induce seizures? Because that would be, you know, not everywhere in your brain would induce a seizure. So it must have been in a specific yeah. place. 
Yeah, it was on my, my left side, uh, or left side of my head, um, near the front. Uh, so they they didn't. I don't think they told. They weren't really concerned right away. I think they were also thinking that I was dehydrated. Uh, but they did a CAT scan as a precaution, uh, maybe due to my age or, or other factors. Uh, they did a CAT scan, and then the doctor came back and said, this is mass. So um, that was uh, basically how that happened. It was pretty quick. Um, you know, there's not a lot of time to think. You're in the hospital. Uh, you're getting these news coming in. Uh, people are concerned. You know, they're calling you. They're texting you. Um, you know, it's, that was how that kind of went down. You must have been numb to what what yeah, was happening. You know, so. you go in thinking you're dehydrated. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden you realize it's way more serious than what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to try and say the type of cancer um, because I, I tried to sound it out, and it's a very complex word and a cancer <laughs> that I'd never heard of. And it yeah. is very rare, and I believe it's around 2% of of uh, brain cancers? Yeah, that sounds about right, yep. It's quite rare, yeah. And so, how did you cope? I mean, I guess you're saying you had family around you and, um, but if you're, you know, you're going from, that may sound, it may sound like a silly question because obviously it's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's just devastating. Yeah. Um, but how were you able to cope going forward did, oh did they decide they needed to do surgery right away that, yeah it was kind of implied um it was large enough that i don't think i could have lived with it um so they were talking about uh, doing a resection or surgery uh, but the other details i didn't know at that time um so they were talking about getting me into surgery uh but they didn't tell me a timeline at that time it was more just uh observation to make sure no other seizures happen um I ended up having surgery two weeks after the diagnosis or whatever the seizure happened. So it was pretty quick, but um, at that time I, was, I knew I was gonna have brain surgery, but I didn't know anything after that or any details of the treatment. So, um, but as I, how I dealt with it, I just thought about what's gonna come next. So um, I knew I'd have to have surgery. So I was preparing myself for that and then making sure that, um, you know, everybody knew that I was okay. and. Uh, I appreciated all the support I got to. I wouldn't have got through this without my uh, coworkers, um, my family, friends. Um, they were all around me. And if had I been alone, it would have been um, a different situation, I think, altogether. Because you have hope when you have people around you. And you, you want to see them the next day. And you want to have more experiences with them. And the more you see them, the more you realize you want those experiences uh, going forward. So. You know, it's, uh, it gives you a lot of hope when you have people around you. And they did. It was fairly significant surgery because people who know you um, would, you know, you're you're not where you had a significant um, piece of your skull removed. Um, yeah, yeah and quite large. People who know you uh, and, you know, kind of see you around town, you're not wearing a big hat and pulling it down over <laughs> your eyes. So nobody so nobody yeah. knows. And I think that that's um, a lot of people would think that that's a pretty brave thing to do and is is that something that you do because you feel it's important that uh that people understand that someone your age can have uh, a brain cancer to that degree yeah that, that's true and i'm not really shy if somebody asked me what happened uh, with the scar on my head uh, about uh, what happened 
Um, it depends on who I'm talking to and whether it's appropriate. But if somebody asks me the question of what happened, I'm free to tell them, uh, you know, it's, it's happened to me. And um, I also tell people, too, if you have any kind of odd headaches or things that you don't recognize happening, that you should probably get checked out by a doctor because, you know, you, you could save your own life by doing that. And it's, um, you know, some people, when they're younger, they think they're invincible and they think that, oh, I have headaches now. It's just a part of my life. But, um, you know, it might just be nothing, but it might be something. So I tell them to go and get checked out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, it is a rare type of cancer and um, hard to treat. And I understand they weren't able to get um, all of the or don't think that they got all of the cancer cells, which uh, most of us know would be around the, the margin. Um, yeah. So what is what was the prognosis coming just coming out of the surgery, um, and and before you went into into some treatments, which we we'll, which we can talk about. Yeah, um, the uh, I had a, a great team of, um, of health professionals at Jurovinsky Cancer Center. Uh, they were very supportive as well. Um, they told me that with the way they were going to treat me, um, the median. Um, Median time I had left to live was four, about 14 years, uh, but that would depend on lots of different variables. So it's, it's not a, a definite amount of time. It's just like it's most people, the median, uh, live around 14 years after diagnosis. Um, so that, they told me that uh, there's a lot of physical and uh, mental uh, tests done around that time too, to make sure that uh, other parts of my brain weren't um, affected by the, the tumor itself. So I had to speak with them about that too, but that was uh, that was the the big major news I got was uh, you have about fourteen years uh, the median time to uh, to kind of have life left, I guess. So, <laughs> but it was uh, it was an interesting conversation. Oh, I can't even imagine that. I mean, you're you're thirty eight years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it was uh, it was kind of yeah big big news to me. I, I wasn't expecting to deal with this at all. I have no family history of it, so. As far as I know, no one's ever had um, brain cancer in my family. Uh, there's other types, of course. Um, grandparents have had different types of cancer and stuff like that as well. I won't get into that. but they, uh, So it's not uncommon in my family, but not brain cancer, especially yeah. not something this rare. Well, cancer isn't cancer isn't cancer, right? If you you know if yeah. you have prostate cancer, it doesn't mean that, oh, you know, there's a greater chance of brain cancer they're, they're different types of cancer every everyone you did undergo so with your treatment you started with radiation and you did a um, bunch of bunch of treatments of radiation and then you were taking um a chemotherapy drug which was just newly tested so there was you know no proof of how it would work so you took that for quite some time yeah, um, I did it for almost a year, I think 18 months total. Um, I took some of it during the radiation treatments as well. So it was kind of like a, a two-pronged approach at first. Um, the radiation was done. Uh, I went in every weekday for six weeks. Um, and after the radiation was done, I still had to take um, the, uh, the pills. So it wasn't, when you see chemotherapy, a lot of people imagine it's um, you're hooked up to a machine uh, that uh, intravenously gives you the medication or chemotherapy. In this case, the medication was a, a pill I had to swallow or several pills. And um, it, it still makes you nauseous. Uh, it doesn't have um, a, a, as big of an effect on your body as, as uh, the 
uh, pick line, they call it pick line, chemotherapy uh, does. So uh, and I've seen people who had pick line chemotherapy and it does take a toll on your body. It's pretty, pretty large toll on your body. Um, fortunately, the chemodol, the, the pill I took for chemotherapy uh, didn't really affect me as badly as that. Um, I'm very fortunate in that sense. Uh, it did make me nauseous a few times. I had to get up in the middle of the night and I uh, had gotten sick. But uh, I took some anti-nausea medication as well that kind of kept that at bay. Um, but the, the, the treatment itself was, you know, it was a little bit scary, of course, but uh, the, it was overall uh, I was very fortunate that they took that approach to the treatment uh, versus um, what they may have done 10 or, or 20 years ago. So. Right, and you would have had to go to uh, Jarvinsky uh, once every couple of weeks for the for the drip chemotherapy. But I understand right. that it was extremely expensive because it was uh, very new and being tested. Yeah. So, well, fortunately, we had, we had um, compassionate care through uh, Jarvinsky and the the drug company, uh, which covered the cost of the medication. Um, I also had a uh, employee uh, benefits that kicked in later on as well. So the combination of the two meant that I didn't have to pay anything out of pocket for the, the treatment. So, Yeah, well, I was talking to your wife and she said it was approximately 5000 per per month for yep, 18 exactly. months, which is, but <laughs> even with my bad math, that's $90,000. So that's, yeah, that's a, quite a bit, yeah. It, and I understand that when when drugs are being developed, it's very expensive to develop drugs. But I'm I'm very pleased that you were able to get some help with that. Now, do you yeah. think? Do they think that that um, has it, it, has it gotten rid of the cancer? Do you think, or has it has it improved your prognosis? Um, I, I believe it has. Like I can't. I don't know for sure whether it's medication uh, itself that did it, or the combination, or the the way they did it. But um, every MRI I've gotten after that has shown that nothing's grown back. Um, the last news I got from the doctor, uh, he said that it would be slow growing, so we probably wouldn't see anything returning in within a decade or two decades. So the prognosis is good right now. Of course, every time an MRI comes up, you have to kind of worry and wonder whether things have changed since last time you went. Um, in the beginning, I was getting MRIs every three months. Uh, I just recently went to every six months, which is for anybody dealing with cancer, they know that that's a positive sign because they're not too concerned about the, um, the tumor or any kind of cancer growing back faster. Uh, so they kind of that's the kind of path you go down. After a while, it's after it's once a year, and then I believe after that, it's every two years, and, and so on and so on. So, um, so far the prognosis is good. Um, but yeah, every time you have a, a notice come in the mail that you have to go get an MRI, you know, it's an emotional moment. You drive to the hospital, and um, during COVID, of course, uh, you go in there alone. Um, they do allow somebody to come in with you if you need uh, physical help or, or mental health help. Um, I just typically just go in and want to get it done with, but, uh, it, you know, it, during COVID, it's especially, I mean, if you were in a more fragile state, it'd be very difficult for people to deal with that. Uh, it's understandable. You don't want hospitals crowded. I get it. Um, but it's, uh, 
you know, you get it done and you hope for the best. You wait for the phone call afterwards as well. And uh, they will tell you uh, everything looks good. And, you know, we'll see you in uh, six months. So, so um, was it hanging over your head all the time, just sort of there uh, for, for, you know, right after the surgery and the diagnosis and while you were still in, in um, treatment? Um, taking the chemotherapy pills before you've, you've kind of moved into more of a well phase, I, I guess, really. From a mental health perspective, was it very hard on your mental health or were you able to kind of, um, well, I'm not even going to say, did you put a positive spin on it? Because that's just kind of a, that's just kind of a dumb thing to say, isn't it? So basically, the question is, how did it affect your mental health, and where are you today with that? Um, I think I mean, you said put a positive spin on it. I wasn't really trying to do that per se, but um, I was trying to think like how I could just take the next step in life and, and not let it get me down too much. Um, it, of course, it's devastating news. Uh, a lot of people around you also get upset, and you realize that it not only affects yourself, but it affects people around you. Um, luckily, I had I had Catherine by my side every every day of the hospital, um, and she was very supportive, even at home too. So uh, you, you you kind of think about what comes next. So uh, you know you want to experience more of life too, and you know you allow yourself to be sad about it because of the things you have to go through and, and you're given more of a, a definite timeline about when you uh, may pass away. And that's something you have to deal with as well. Um, I came to peace with it because I figured that, um, you know, this has to have happened for a reason. So I just kind of thought maybe we could help other people uh, going through it as well. And that'll give me the purpose to keep going forward. Um, and of course I, I work as a, um, a youth counselor. So, I kind of had those tools in, in my belt already to, to deal with uh, adversity and crisis. So I kind of use that as well. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's fortunate I had those, that kind of training to begin with. But uh, I just kind of, uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of be an example for people that are going through this as well, that, you know, it's, it's, it's devastating. It is, it, it comes with a lot of other health problems often, um, but it doesn't have to define how you live the rest of your life. You can, you know, you can still do things. Um, there's certain things I can't do. I can't, you know, get in a boxing ring or anything like that that would uh, involve any head trauma or, you know, and, and I was a bit nervous about riding a bike because, uh, you know, if you fall or hurt your head, it, it could create some uh, issues because of the, uh, I had a piece of my skull taken out. So that's gonna, uh, if I hit my head, it's gonna be pretty bad. But, um, you know, you're not limited so much uh, there is people, of course, so that have uh, effects afterwards that they have to deal with as well. Uh, fortunately, I, I don't have uh, many or any really that I can think of uh, after effects that have stopped me from doing what I would normally do. So um, that's, again, I'm fortunate. Not many people are that fortunate, unfortunately. Uh, spending time in an oncology ward is one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever had to do. Uh, there's families that are crying all the time and you know that you know, it's you just—it's just a really difficult to uh, to be there because it's a place of, of deep suffering, and you hear uh, people that are just uh, yeah. It's just difficult to to try to sleep in a, in a place like that uh, with all the pain around you, and you just wanted to talk to everybody and tell them it's going to be okay, but 
you also want to respect their privacy. So it's, it's really a difficult situation to be in. Um, I just finished reading a book called uh, Between Two Kingdoms. And it's about a young woman who um, gets cancer and is in treatment. Um, I, I believe it's leukemia. And she's in and out. She lives in New York and she's in and out of treatment over over the space of a few years and, and um, long periods of long stays in the hospital. And she met a lot of people and they they developed sort of a, a support club. And they did stuff together and they went out when they were feeling feeling well. And uh, it was really uplifting to read that part of the book. But then, and I'm not, I'm, I don't know if this is, if this happened to you. When she was um, declared cancer free, she thought life would just start again, but it didn't because life had completely changed. You know, cancer had completely changed her life. Is that something that, that you feel in it? Did it did it drive you to to do different things? Yeah, it, it did. Um, when you live day, life day to day, sometimes it gets mundane, and you think to yourself, "What else can I do?" or or um, or you don't want to do anything else. You just go to work and you come home, and you kind of enjoy your life as it is. Um, but kind of putting a some of the timeline on your life, you have to think about what you can and want to do, and uh, you have you know, how many years, it's unknown at this point, but it's obviously shortened. Um, so you have to think about whether you want to start a family, uh, whether you can start a family, um, if you want to travel different places, uh, all the things you want to do become more urgent, like you can't put it off much longer because you don't know if things will go worse or better. Um, so yeah, life doesn't, even if you are uh, considered cancer-free or you're stable, uh, life doesn't really go back to normal because of the experiences you've had. Um, even just having brain surgery itself is a, a risk to anybody. It uh, doesn't matter if it's a traumatic brain injury or, or a cancer-based uh, brain surgery. Uh, there's always a chance that you'll have some after effects or, um, or you know, some other kind of symptoms just due to the surgery alone. So going through all that, it kind of gives you a different idea of what life actually is. And uh, you appreciate life a lot more, of course, and that's, most people would probably agree with that. Um, so yeah, that's, it, it does change the way you think about things and it's just the fragility of life too. Um, uh, unfortunately, I, I work around a lot of people who, uh, who pass away too soon. And when I think about that, it's just, you know, it, death touches a lot of people uh, in life, but when it's so, people die younger not myself i'm not talking about myself other people that die younger you kind of think like they could have done so much more with their life and you want to when you think about that you want to do more as well because you want to embrace life and, and want to do as much as you can do and help as many people as you can uh before you know the end comes andrew so, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking to me i think that um there's a lot of people out there who are dealing with cancer who are younger and uh, and knowing that there's someone out there who is who has lived through um, the same experience and is continuing your life is really, really inspirational.